0: And back in the day at our house, we played Name That Band or Name That Tune. If you'll listen carefully, if you'll drown out with silence all of the stuff of our lives that tends to drown out our existence the noise of living, the noise of traveling, the noise of working, the noise of schedules. If you let all of that slip away and if you'll listen very carefully, you'll hear the steady, faint, ever-loudening drumbeat of war. As we gather here today, over in a part of the world that many of us, maybe most of us have never been and may never go to, there is a... Proliferation, a, a massing of troops along a border between two countries. And the drumbeat of war pushes forward from Russia into Ukraine. That's kind of natural for our lives. We've, if those of us who have any seasoning on us at all, have learned to mark time by war. For those of you who are alive in the mid 1940s, Just the mention of the mid 1940s brings to mind the Great War, World War II. Some of us grew up through the years of the Vietnam War in the 1960s with all the other things that they push into our thinking. We think war in the Vietnam War at that time. Some of you have been to war. War seems to be one of those staples of our lives. When it comes to the church, it's important that we recognize that Jesus virtually guarantees that the church will come into what we would call warfare. But in the process of guaranteeing that for us, he also guarantees something else that comes with it. I say he virtually guarantees war for us because he doesn't come right out and say it in the passage that we're about to look at, but it is there. Matter of fact, it's all over the the, the words as we work our way through this passage. Take your Bibles if you have them and go with me to Matthew chapter 16. This is now our fourth message in this little series. Actually, I've extended it another week and we'll take the last part of this little verse today or this section, Uh, we'll take the last part next week. But today we pick up reading in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 13. Now, um, I didn't put all of this into the slide, so if you have your Bibles, catch up and then you'll see where it comes in. Verse 13, and now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Matthew says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's referring to himself. Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Pretty heady company there that Jesus is being identified with. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, congratulations, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. As I said to you a number of weeks ago now, this little passage provides for us the launch pad of this organization. Actually, it's not really an organization. It is an organism and it is the church that Jesus Christ has founded. We are part of it, but we are not it. We're just a part of it. And this church, this ekklesia, this gathering, this community that Jesus establishes at this place stretches through history and stretches across political boundaries and stretches through time. And it says to us today, we are a part of something much bigger than just a gathering of people in Lumberton, Texas. This passage is chocked full of significant truth for us. We began this series a few weeks ago. We began it over in Luke's Gospel... I've moved to Matthew's gospel because Matthew allows the elaboration that Jesus gave during this time, but it all started at this place called Caesarea Philippi, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. I told you last week it was as far north in the land of Israel as you could go and still be in the land of Israel back in Jesus' day. The most unlikely of places for Jesus to build a church, and he starts it. Right there, and it all starts with the question, but who do you say that I am? Simon's answer, we saw this in Luke's gospel you are the Christ of God. The Christ, a significant term. For those who were listening to him in that first century setting, they would have heard the Christ as the Messiah, that is, the promised one. And throughout Jewish history, they've been waiting for this one that God would send who would come in riding a great white horse, uh, swinging a flaming sword, doing justice in the name of God and elevating the children of Israel to what they believe was their rightful place in all of the political, geopolitical landscape of the world. Messiah. Christ, the promised one, he was. So when Simon Peter cuts through all of the religious rhetoric that everybody else was saying, and he says, you are the Christ. He set a mouthful with that. You're the promised one. But as we worked our way through Luke's gospel, we saw that he wasn't just the promised one. He was very clearly the sent one, the one that God sent from heaven, the very Son of God sent down to fulfill the promise of the Messiah. It's a major, major point in the life of these disciples, as the words tumble out of their mouths, their ears hear the truth, is a singular point in time. Matthew and Luke both, by this time in their gospels, have helped us to see that Jesus was not only the promised one or the sent one, he was in fact the only one who could bring life. But you see... The reality of that if that's true and it is if he really is the only one who can bring life then that puts some demands on us you can't hear someone say I'm the only one who can offer this to you and then walk away and try to get it somewhere else Jesus is the only one who can bring life. He's the promised one. He was sent. And as He came, He brings, not brought, past tense, but He continues to bring life for us. And as the life bringer, He comes into an environment that is full of death. We see that in our world today this death penalty that we all carry from birth, the sin nature that we all carry from birth is a death sentence. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that we're already dead when we're born because of this sin nature. But the life bringer, Jesus Christ, steps into that and he brings for us what we need, but he brings it into an environment that is full of death. We find that all over, it's, it's pervasive, this death. I was having a discussion not too long ago with a, uh, a gentleman who, uh, I guess, what do you call him, exterminator? Um, now, some of you are thinking about Arnold Schwarzenegger when I say that. That's terminator. That's not exactly the same thing. <laughs> the guy who sees that you have pests at your house and he kills them. Okay. Now, this is the bug kind, not the teenager kind. And so I was talking to this guy, because he was at our house, and, um, and we were talking about ants, because I was noticing that East Texas seems to have a lot of fire ants. And I was asking him, what do you do with that? And he said, well, you know, you, first of all, you got to really look at them and make sure that they're fire ants. I said, oh, they're fire ants. I can assure you, I, they've, they've hit me pretty hard, and I get the fire part of that fire ant description. He said, no, 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 what you need to understand is there is a thing called raspberry crazy ants. Have you heard of these? It has nothing to do with the fruit, okay? Go Google it later today. And not during church. Teenagers are back there going, hashtag Google. Hash. <laughs> raspberry, no P, just raspberry crazy ants. I saw an article online this week. That says that these things are now becoming huge problems in the Houston area. That's us, as it turns out. That's why my exterminator friend was telling me about this. And the reality of it is that these crazy ants come in the billions at a time, they kill fire ants. Well, I like them already. Except that I don't because they feed on electrical lines and those kind of things. And we're going to find this proliferation, this increase of these as we go forward. <laughs> raspberry, fire, uh, raspberry crazy ants are a pretty good description of what sin seems to be doing to us. Just marches across the the landscape of history. It leaves death in its path. That death that comes with sin has racked God's creation. We see it in our relationships with each other, man-to-man kind of relationships. Another online story I saw this week, a North Dakota woman is charged with murdering her 13-year-old son who weighed only 21 pounds when he died of starvation in January. How in the world could somebody do that to somebody else? Death is very real in our time. Man-to-man kind of stuff like that, We've seen the man against nature kind of progress and assault that death brings. As we've watched this week from a distance, as people up in the upper northwest try to dig through a mudslide and find what's left of a life, sin just marches on. Death has a way of forcing itself to the forefront. Should be no surprise to us then that Jesus included a death reference when he instituted his church. Now, I know we just read through that, and you're probably looking back and say, wait a minute, I don't see a death reference in there. And maybe you think, well, you know, the gates of hell thing, maybe. Well, actually, the gates of hell thing is exactly where we find this reference. With death as pervasive as it is, as everywhere in life as it is for us, it should not be a surprise that Jesus, when he institutes his church, brings death into the discussion. And on this rock, this confession of the reality of who I am, I will build my community of believers. And then he steps forward with that discussion and he says, And the gates... Now, actually, this is one of those places where our English English translators take some liberties I wish they would not have taken. In my Bible, it says the gates of hell. But if you'll notice, if you have the ESV, there's a footnote to that. And at the bottom, it says this. The Greek of this says the gates of Hades. And in our English-speaking mind, that doesn't seem to make much of a difference. But it makes all the difference in the world. It's not that the gates of hell is a wrong reference. It just hides some of the important stuff that Jesus puts into this for us. It is at this location Jesus institutes his church. and, even, um, and That is a significant statement that it is at this location that Jesus chooses to institute this death-defying community called the church. Just before we moved here, it's been three years ago in the month of April, which is day after tomorrow, right? So just before we moved here in April of 2011, Teresa received a phone call from a fellow pastor's wife who said, we're going to go to the Women of Faith Conference and they're inviting all preacher's wives to come for free. So if you're wondering why your stuff is so expensive, ladies, when you go, it's because Preacher's Wives got to go for free. They were going to cover all of their airfare, all of their lodging. They were going to be VIP guests at the Women of Faith Conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. I wasn't sure that Teresa would come home after that. (laughs) You do know that in America, maybe even in the world, one of the nicknames for Las Vegas is Sin City. Seems like an interesting place to send a bunch of preacher's wives without their husbands. <laughs> Caesarea Philippi, the place where this occurs in first century world of Jesus and his disciples had the reputation of being sin city. As a matter of fact, one scholar calls it this. He says Caesarea Philippi in the first century was the red light district of Israel. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would go to that place? This Caesarea Philippi that at one time was actually a Greek city, And it was instituted there by one of those great Greek people of the uh, uh, Alexander and those guys who came after him. And uh, as part of their Hellenization, the spread of the Greek culture and the Greek mythology and all that kind of stuff, Uh, This particular place was established as a city and as a center for worship for the God. Now, this is G, little g, right? Greek mythology has nothing to do with God. It is a small g, all right? But it was a center for the worship of the God they called Pan. Pan. Now, you'll know from your studies in school and Greek mythology that Pan was the half human, half goat variety of these gods with a little g. And so this, and it was part of a fertility kind of a cult, a fertility approach. And so they did sacrifices and stuff like that. Pan was the god of the forest, if I remember right, and that kind of stuff. But, but this particular place that Jesus takes his disciples and institutes the church is in Sin City, the red-light district of Israel. It is the center of this Pan worship. All of their worship. For that particular cult of Greek mythology was fertility based. I know that we have young ears in here, and I want to be appropriate in how I say or don't say things. So put your adult ears on and hear me say a fertility cult that involved men and goats. It was Sin City. (laughs) <laughs> with Jerusalem in their backyard, why would Jesus take these disciples there to do this? There's a cave there at Caesarea Philippi. It's this place where they did all of this worship, and I'll come to a little bit more of that background in just a second, but there was a cave there And this cave during the first century was full of water. Now, when Teresa and I went to Israel for our tour several years ago now, uh, we went to this particular spot. And this cave is about 30 feet up above where everybody else has to stand most of the time. And it was the central place where they did all of this worshiping and the sacrifices attached to the worship of the god Pan. And in those days, it was full of water. And they had tried repeatedly to determine how deep it was and they couldn't figure out how deep it was. And so they began to believe and this legend rose up that in that particular place, that particular cave was the passageway from the underworld to the real world. And over a period of time, it began... By the way, the passageway means that they believed that these spirits, most of them evil spirits, would come out of the ground and out of that cave called the gates of hell, and they would come and they would wreak havoc with men. Actually, they weren't called the gates of hell. That's our English use of this word. It was technically called the gates of Hades, which was another word, a Greek term, that referred to like the Old Testament word for Sheol. It was simply the place of the dead. So Jesus takes his disciples here to the identified intersection of life and death. And he says, this life giver does, the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. Because of the significance of that place for all these pagan people, all these other gods began to be worshipped there also. Gods with a small g. So in our tour of that place, they took us first to where we could look up on the ledge and see this bottomless pit that suddenly has a bottom now because of all the years of sediments and that kind of stuff. And and those days seemed to be bottomless, the passageway from the place of the dead and the people of the dead to life. And across the bottom of that now, we find the ruins of this rock. It's called the Rock of the Gods, and they have carved little shrine places into the face of that, wa- of that rock. And they used to go in there, these people of the first century. All these other gods wanted to get in on the deal. People were scared to death of death. And so they started carving into the rock face these places where they could set their little god idols up there. And it became a central place to avoid death. Or at least somehow try to cheat death as they paid homage to their gods. In the process, what we find is that place became ground zero for evil and immorality. The gates of Hades. more than just some kind of a nice little reference that Jesus dreams up. It is real... In the hearing of those disciples, with one ear they hear Jesus say, I am instituting my community of faith right here. and With their other ear they hear the debauchery that comes with pagan worship. There's some implications of that truth for us and we need to get them. Here's the first one. The intersection of life and death For the pagan world, Jesus, the life bringer, sets up shop. We we really need to hear that, we Christians in America today. Here's the implication. Church work and the work of the church, and by the way, those are not always the same thing. Church work and the work of the church happens in dangerous Dirty places. I'm going to say that again to give you a chance to give an amen. No, No, actually, I'm not either. I just want you to read it again. Save your amens, but let the truth of this trickle down in the heart of who you are and how you perceive church. By design, Jesus, when he institutes this thing called the church, does it in the red light district of the world at that time. He steps into the figurative Las Vegas of our times and he says, this place is dangerous and dirty. What a great place to put a church. But you see, that bothers us. That is unwelcome news to many Christian people. Old school, old, old school. When I was in the process of coming out of my haze of my young adult activities, there was a song that I heard from a guy and here's the words of it. Some people want to live within the sound of chapel bells, but I want to build a mission a yard from the gates of hell. Run to the battle. But you see, you don't like that. It's church people we don't like that. As a matter of fact, throughout history, the church has had to combat the urge to shrink back, build walls, and hunker down behind them because we don't like death and we're threatened by dangerous and dirty. Neither in its inception nor any time since then has God said that's acceptable. Never. And yet that is where we tend to want to build our house. It's war. This confrontation between life and death is war. And it's dangerous for us. And it's bloody for us. And often, all too often, it's very public. And it's scary. As a matter of fact, it's really scary. It's especially scary if you have to be involved in it. Scary was tangible at the gates of Hades in first century Jewish life. I told you that that's where all of their, well, much of their hand worship occurred in those days and they had this little routine that they went through the priest did. Where the gates of Hades were was up on this uh, platform, uh, the top part of a cliff I guess is the right way to say that. It was about 30 feet above where the people, the real people would stand. And when they would bring, oh, by the way, there was a waterfall that came off of that. I told you that it was full of water in those days and this waterfall came off of it. And so these people who were worshiping this God, this false God, would bring their sacrifices and they would go through all of the stuff of that worship and that cult of stuff and they would go and then take their sacrifice and they would take them to the priest who would take their sacrifice up onto that platform where the water hole, where the hole was and where they would do the sacrifices and according to our tour guide, Tony Chris, they would take those sacrifices, send the people back down and they would offer those sacrifices up there at the top and let the blood of that sacrifice flow into the water. And whether that sacrifice was accepted according to the priests of that cult or not depended on whether the blood would flow over the waterfall into the collecting pool down where the people were standing. And according again to our guide, Dr. Tony Crisp, the interval between the time that sacrifice was given at the top and the blood flowed into that water in that pool that interval before they could see it come over the waterfall was about 30 seconds if it was going to happen. By the way, the temple of Pan, waiting to see if your sacrifice at the gates to the underworld was accepted or not became known as the time of panic. What panics you? in the war that we're in. I was at the, at the airport Thursday, picking up Colin and Selena, our beautiful daughter-in-law, beautiful inside and out she is. I got there early because their flight landed at 8 and i have been in East Texas long enough to know I didn't want to drive through Houston traffic to get there at 8. And so I left the house about 430 which gave me some time to sit at the airport, and uh, you know, uh, it's probably one of the reasons that I get to be a preacher and, and not an inmate. It's because I don't do everything I think about. I was, <laughs> I was thinking about this, this whole thing. I was sermonizing, right? And, no better place to do that than when there's a bunch of people at an airport on a business day. so I was thinking about this panic and what panics us as church people, and I was thinking about war, and so here 's what I thought: you know, if I just stood up in Houston Hobby Airport, because that's that big collection area right where they just everybody has to go through security, if I just stood up and yelled this he 's got a bomb!" Do you suppose there would be a little bit of panic there? You see, by the way, do not do this at home, okay? Or at an airport. But you see the sensitivities of our time because of the war of our time says that to stand up and yell that in an airport is guaranteed to trigger panic that interval of time between what we hear and the time that we absolutely come back and go, oh, okay, wait a minute, that's not it. The panic time when our emotions run crazy with us. Now, I want you to hear me very carefully here because this gets right down into how we do church. The whole series is called who are we We've got to get this right, but here's what I want you to get at this place where Jesus this dirty, dangerous place Jesus said, "I'm going to start right here building my community. It's dangerous there, and many church people absolutely panic when they look around them and see that everybody in this world doesn't believe like they do. Here's a good slide for you to get. When panic rises, it just kind of seems like God dies. I'm careful to say it seems like God God dies because I know that he doesn't. But the reality is for most of of us, when we panic, he kind of does die for us. Because we move our focus off of him and we put it on the situation and all of a sudden, we can't do this. It's dangerous give you a great example. I don't want to make anybody mad, but if you get mad, I'm okay with that if you're getting mad at truth. I'm beginning to hear and see this groundswell of opposition against the movie called Noah. With all the Christian love I can muster, do you really expect Hollywood to get the Bible right? That's crazy to think that. So you know. So let's make sure. Don't expect the enemy to play fair. This is war. But you see, here's the deal. When if if all we can do is be against something, they've won already. By by the grace of God and in His power, I, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to go see that movie. All right. I hope I can enjoy it. But here's why I'm going to go see it. Because everybody in the country is talking about it now. What a great opportunity to watch it. And instead of feeling like you've got to defend the Bible, why don't you say, you know what, there's some truth in that. But the reality of, let me tell you the real story of Noah. Boom, you're into a discussion with them that assaults death with life. Who are we? The church. Are we just a group of people who are against stuff? I guarantee you Jesus would not have signed off on the stuff that was happening at Caesarea Philippi. And yet he walks into the teeth of death and says, I am the life bringer. So when it gets scary for you, I get that, okay? I know you, so many of y'all have young children, grandchildren, and we're looking at this world going, oh my goodness, what happened? You think this is bad? Hang on for another 20 years and see what you get. If Christians shrink back, build walls, and hunker down behind them. Jesus goes into the teeth of death and brings life. What a great symbolic act that he did with his disciples here. So when it's scary and panic tends to set in for you or for me, notice that what Jesus says is, and the gates of Hades will not Prevail. So the life bringer, as it turns out, is also the victor. That word prevail means won't overpower, won't gain mastery over. This is when we're glad to know it's his church, isn't it? Because See, you know why it's not appropriate for us to call Jesus Superman? Because there is no kryptonite for him. He's Victor. That's not a proper name. That's a description. That's a title. Jesus said, let me put it in our terminology today. I'm building my community right here in this dangerous, dirty, red-light district of the world. And by the way, when it scares you, just know, I got this. we so don't have to be afraid. You don't have to shrink back. Jesus says, I got it. So what does all of that mean for us, really? Sadly, for many Christian peoples, it means They refuse to engage in the war regardless of what Jesus has promised. One of the most enjoyable and yet disturbing books I've read in recent years was one written by Eric Metaxas. It was a biography of one of the great Christians of the Second World War by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I highly recommend the book. What disturbed me about it so much was the church of Germany, while Hitler was building his influence and building his war machine, the church of his day just winked at it and said, it's okay. Many Christians, it doesn't matter what Jesus says. It's just cool. We're going to do our church thing. We'll go in. We'll feel good about going there. It's all good. It's all good. Jesus says, no, it's not. It's war. But see, these promises of Christ for many of us and for all of us really need to bring for us courage and focus and provides the marching orders that we desperately need to get out into the dangerous, dirty places and go to war. Let me just tell you, war is on the horizon for this church. I'm talking about this church, Crestwood Baptist Church. If you listen closely, you hear the drum beats. If that's not true here, you called the wrong pastor three years ago. This community is nice and has pretty good morals. They need a war. They need us to be the church. They need us to get out into the streets with the good news of Jesus Christ. The life bringer as he confronts death head on. And that's us. The question for us is not whether or not we get to go to war. The question is how are you going to do in the middle of the war? Because a war's coming to a theater near you just for the record. This week, I had an email conversation with Dr. Rick Yount. Most of you know him. He was the one who came, one of my professors from seminary, seminary many, many, many centuries ago. Dr. Yount came and he spoke in our early service one day. You may remember that uh, one of the things that he does with his time now as a semi-retired seminary professor is he goes into Eastern Europe and he does seminary training classes for pastors there. I asked him how the people were that he knows and deals with in Ukraine. They're waiting for the other shoe to drop, most of them. Here's his response to me. I'm going to read it directly to you. Here's what he said to my question, how are those church people doing over there? Remember, the context is war. Here's what he said. They survived Soviet times, so they are tough, and they will do what they must. The good news is that since Perestroika in 1990, 10,000 Baptist churches have been planted in Ukraine. These are dedicated people who love the Lord. They will continue to minister with the gospel, whatever Putin does. And the gates of Hades will not prevail. should bow your heads with me for a moment. We're about to go into Lord's Supper time. What a great reminder in this message today to take us into the celebration of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But before we do that, I want to give you the opportunity right there where you sit to do business with Jesus, the life bringer. If you're sitting here today and you don't know the life that he gives you can today's the day jesus is not playing hide and seek with you he wants you to know him he wants you to have the life that only he can give so it's best you know how if you don't know him right there where you sit Responding as best you know how to what you've heard and what something deep inside of you. By the way, that's His Spirit working on you. Just respond to Him and say, with what all of the questions that I have, what little I know is, I believe that you're real and I need you in my life so whatever I have to do to get life, I want it. That's not the nice little programmed prayer that we tend to teach people. But that's the prayer that'll put you hand in hand with him. If you don't know him, just however you do it, right there with just you and God, why don't you respond to who he is. Take the life that he brings. Join the war on the, y, on the side that wins. He'll give you life that will absolutely blow your mind. Many of us here, prayed that nice formulaic prayer a long time ago. Maybe somewhere we lost sight of just how serious this is. Jesus, the life bringer, says to you, just come on home, just come on back. Let's fix it right now. Let's move forward together. So today you begin to grow roots deep into the love of God and the power of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Won't you get that straight right now? Just no matter what else is going on. If you don't get that straight, then whatever else has happened here, it hasn't been really a very good hour for you. Father, change lives for your glory. Is our prayer in Jesus' name.